My name is Mia Bakker, and I am going to dive deep and analyze what feminism means. In my own personal definition, feminism is defined as equality for all. When I say feminism is equality for all, I don't mean to negate or breeze over the struggles and obstacles that women have faced in the past. Feminism, when we look historically at it, was a movement created by and for women. But if we reflect back on the three main waves of feminism that have basically shaped what that term means to me today, uh, I think what I am trying to express as my definition of feminism will make more sense. So... I'd like to begin by looking at first wave feminism. Now, first wave feminism was between 1848 to 1920, uh, and some notable members were Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, and the whole discussion of suffragist versus suffragette was kind of a huge issue. Now, in this era, in the late 1840s, women were trying to obtain the vote. Uh, and feminists like Anthony and Stanton were suffragists. So they were more intent on following the rules, more intent on appeasing people who were in power. Uh, and suffragettes were more keen on co-fighting against this power structure. Uh, so they're women who felt that trying to conform to the thoughts and the ideas that powerful men, which were in that period, white landowning men who were able to vote, uh, just wasn't a thing that these women wanted to abide by. They did not want to abide by these stereotypes. So it goes without saying where it should be said, excuse me, uh, that women like Stanton and Anthony, who were suffragists, ended up representing a class of women that wasn't exactly inclusive. They were white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied, middle-class women. And when it came down to it, because they did not want to go against societal norms and the patriarchal power structure, 
they stepped aside and they told black feminists that they would be advocating for the right to vote, but it would be only disclosed to women who are white. So when the 19th Amendment passed in around 1920, women were allowed the right to vote thanks to the first wave of feminists. But only white women. And other women of color were only able to get the vote decades later. So African-American women received the right to vote at around 1965. So Native American women, 1965. Asian American women received the right to vote at 1952. But that's about a 30-year gap between white women's ability to vote and women of color who were huge supporters and huge organizers of this first wave movement. And these feminists that are very well known today, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth uh, Cady Stanton, They were very famous for their organization of the Seneca Falls Convention. Um, And they received good traction from white feminists, from white women and white men. Um, But no black women were ever invited. No women of color really were invited. And the only person of color there was one black man and that was Frederick Douglass so with this first wave in mind uh, we're going to go to the second wave Uh, it's mostly defined by books like The Second Sex or Feminine Mystique And in this period, uh, women were more were more activism strong. So they really wanted to figure out how they can really gain more rights. And some of these rights came in obtaining the ability to go outside of the home and work, to get their own credit card, to not have to abide by the construct of having children and staying home and having a a nuclear family. But again, while the second wave was very inclusive to women of color, they didn't particularly recognize that these great books like The Second Sex or Feminine Mystique, that they didn't encompass everyone's experiences. Uh, They mostly encompass still the white middle-aged woman who was in a heterosexual marriage uh, with cisgender, was able-bodied, 
Uh, and it really negated kind of the experience of women of color, disabled women, uh, just niches of women that were considered quote unquote minorities. And now we turn to third wave feminism. So third wave feminism is a harder wave to describe because people are still contemplating today whether third wave feminism has ended, if it is still continuing now, uh, and what it really encompassed. A major thing that I've researched and that I believe third wave feminism represents is sexual assault. Uh, Anita Hill's testimony where she comes forward and she alleges that she was sexually assaulted uh, or sexually harassed by a boss that ends up becoming a judge on the Supreme Court is a moment where women and injustice in the workplace and sexual allegations and how they are discussed and I would like to use the word resolved. But third wave feminism goes over a whole bunch of issues that overlap with the experiences of women who were perceived as minorities and weren't really addressed before, like women of color uh, and the prison system. Uh, We're talking about queer women genderqueer individuals which falls into the category or the umbrella term of transgender and disabled women all different kinds of experiences are brought forward in this third wave and one incre- one incredible individual uh, named Kimberly Crenshaw coined a word that really ended up, in my belief, unifying these three waves of feminism and kind of, no, not kind of, completely eclipses what I think feminism is and what it should be and using examples in the past three waves of feminism or the past two waves uh what we can do better so kimberly crenshaw coined the term intersectionality uh when she coined this word she was trying to describe a a kind of unification between racism and sexism and As a black woman, she was trying to talk about how 
feminism is really... It was a kind of exclusive term before. Feminists were mostly white women who had the privilege of being middle class, being heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied. They were financially stable. They were mentally stable. And... That is just one perspective and one experience of women that does not encompass everyone. So Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality is something that I believe makes sense and I believe is something that is true to my idea of what a feminist means. When we look at the past, we've seen that that feminism, excuse me, has been exclusionary. It has been only meant to help women who are privileged. When in actuality, from the very beginning, I'm not just talking about the legalization of women to be able to vote. I'm not talking about social uh, acceptances or social rights. I'm not talking about just addressing problems in everyday life now. I'm talking about how women wanted to be equal to men. Women wanted to be equal to men. That's it. And I believe feminism is wanting everyone to be equal to each other. And that's why my definition is so much broader. Because there are so many more than women and men now. There are so many more niches than white women and white men. So many more niches than middle class women, middle class men. There are different kinds of women and men and all different kinds of genders that are not equal, and they should be. And that is why I believe that feminism is equality for all, because women... Feminists, people have been disenfranchised. They have been fighting so they could be equal to a very powerful group. And unfortunately, they left behind multiple people in order to get a few people the rights that they deserve. And Now it's time for all people to receive the rights that they deserve. And that means to open up what the definition of feminism means. I included a video from the feminist website Jezebel, 
on an analysis of white feminism and how it has historically impacted the feminist movement. I think that the narrator, uh, the author Amina Wahid, uh, correctly presents the issue of white feminism in history and currently how it is affecting Americans today. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton have been America's feminist darlings since forever ago, launching the fight for equality. Well, for white women. In her speech to the state legislature of New York in 1854, Stanton said, We are moral, virtuous, and intelligent. And yet, by your laws, we are classed with idiots, lunatics, and Negroes. And her fellow suffragette leader, Anthony, once said, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. That's right. First wave feminism was hella racist. It fought for white women's rights by arguing against the rights of, as Stanton called them, degraded black men. Black men having the right to vote before upper-class white women? The horror. It gets worse. Not only were black women excluded from the suffragette movement, organizers of the 1913 suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. asked them to march in the back of the line. They were like, hey girls, you can hang back for like another 45 years until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, thanks. Bye. Fast forward to the 1960s and 1970s, and this culture of excluding women of color from feminist organizing spaces becomes more multi-layered. The ways that they're excluded would be um, in terms of leadership, um, in terms of which communities are being organized, in terms of which topics are being organized around, um, as well as which resources are being allocated to kind of make social change. Dr. Salamisha Tillett is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the co-founder of A Long Walk Home, a nonprofit that uses art to end violence against women and girls. Excluding women of color, you're not actually tackling the crux of the ways in which gender equality and racial inequality and economic inequality work in concert with each other. And that's the key. While white feminists have the privilege to focus on issues like reproductive health, sexual freedom, and wage equality, women of color have had to fight sexism and structural and institutional racism. But that hasn't stopped them. From women like Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells, feminist writers and activists who fought for African-American rights in the late 1800s and early 1900s, to Dolores Huerta, the Chicana who co-founded the United Farm Workers Union in 1962 and transformed the labor movement. To Shirley Chisholm, who was not only the first black woman elected to Congress, but the first black candidate to run for the nomination of a major party for the U.S. presidency. To the women of the Black Panther Party, who made up the majority of the organization. Women of color have been smashing the shit out of gender and racial ceilings. They also led and organized marches and campaigns like the original Million Women March in 1997 to protest the economic deterioration of African-American communities. And long before celebrities dressed in black to protest sexual harassment, there was Paulette Barnes, Diane Williams, and Michelle Vincent, black women who filed lawsuits against their bosses and shaped the sexual harassment laws we have today. Laws created to protect all women. Don't even get us started on Time Magazine's blatant erasure of Me Too founder Toronto Burke from its Person of the Year cover, which was all about the movement against sexual harassment that she started a decade ago. And women of color are still out here fighting to save all our behinds. 
Thanks to the activism of black women, 98% of whom voted nope to Roy Moore in Alabama, an alleged child molester was not elected to a Senate seat, even though white women overwhelmingly voted for him. You're welcome, America. So why are mainstream feminist organizing circles still leaving out black and brown women's voices and contributions? I guess obviously is um, in terms of leadership, right? So it's not simply like what issues rise to the forefront of women's rights movements, but also who gets to be the voice of feminism. I do think though it's much harder for white feminists to, to identify with the struggles of women of color. This may explain why when it comes to organizing efforts around things like Black Lives Matter or the killing of black women like Sandra Bland, white mainstream feminists tend to be largely silent. Oh, and when it comes to the gender pay gap with white men, women of color are still trailing behind white women, y'all. If you're talking about gender equality, but not talking about racism, you just don't have effective reform. And you can have versions of feminism that don't um, incorporate thinking about the ways in which people experience multiple forms of oppression. You definitely can have it. Is it as effective? No. The reality is, to move forward, feminist organizing spaces need to include the issues and leadership of women who are not just from the white, upper-middle-class, lean-in, bourgeois, but those who exist across different parts of American society, starting with the most vulnerable. Of course, there's always going to be opinions and thoughts on feminism that is not always going to correlate with my definition of feminism. Uh, Something that makes me think of that is the play Antigone, which we read in class. Now, Antigone is a Greek tragedy following the titular character and it follows basically 24 hours of her life. Her brother, who was also her lover, uh, was murdered and his body was left out without a proper burial and it was announced by the king, who is her father-in-law because she married someone else uh, said that anyone who would be caught trying to bury this man would essentially die and or be punished and as all Greek tragedies go uh, it basically followed this dramatic plot that resulted in a lot of death and a lot of grief. So the big emphasis in this play for me at least is the saying, blood is thicker than water. Uh, Where she risked punishment, she risked injury in order to bury her brother. And that was more important to her than following the rules abiding by her husband and her father-in-law, and even her own life. It contrasts with my idea of feminism because it essentially... 
holds this idea that uh, men are more important, greater. They deserve to have this this kind of huge emphasis on them and their masculinity and their power. This is seen by her brother who died and was told to be very, very powerful, very strong. And it's further emphasized by the king, her father-in-law, who has these very strict rules and is unafraid to uphold them. Uh, especially to a woman. Now in this play, essentially women are perceived as obviously weaker, as powerful, emotional, hysterical, basically invalid in any single way. So it goes without saying that the power imbalance due to the basis of gender is something that really goes against my idea of intersectional feminism. Well, <laughs> I, this is my friend Shiloh. Hi. Hello. Um, the last time I actually like read read through Antigone was in high school. So um I just did a fun little fun little uh, spark notes recap. Mm-hmm. So I but I do remember a lot of what we talked about in high school. We talked about how like Creon is very orderly by the books, very um pragmatic and logical. Um and which is very like masculine stereotypes. And what's her name? Antigone. Antigone. <laughs> you know the name of the book. Um, Antigone is very emotional and headstrong and doesn't think about the uh, consequences of her decisions, which is very like feminine stereotypes. And it goes to show that, like, first of all, the stereotypes don't serve either of them, and you need a combination of both to be an effective leader as well as just like a decent human being um and so and it also kind of like i like idealizes and romanticizes um mental illness and it's it it makes it seem that like suicide is caused by external factors mm-hmm. as opposed to chemical <laughs> imbalances in your brain um, and like very complex um, mm-hmm. mental illnesses and it's just like no oh my god this happened mm-hmm. and the only result is wow gotta kill myself I gotta off myself <laughs> yeah um, those are my general thoughts on the story <laughs> I don't think that and this means just like a total pushover um so like there's that she kind of just she's loyal to a fault which is another very like feminine stereotype is very like Mm -hmm. i'm gonna stick by stick by these men in charge even if it's not something i personally believe in Mm -hmm. it's not what i think is right 
for now. That's your thing. Yeah. So, like, for my project, essentially, I define feminism as equality for all. Um, and that means, like, all genders, all, you know, races, ethnicities, religions, Absolutely. like, everything. Um, and, you know, I did a brief history of the, the three waves of feminism. So, like, first wave, uh, which was about, like, legalization of voting. Second wave, which is mostly about kind of um, more activism work. And third wave is more, I guess, like, you know, abortion rights kind of stuff. But I noticed that in all three waves, you know, like, minorities really weren't involved. It was mostly, Absolutely. like, white women who were cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied, you know, middle class. And it was mostly, like, pretty racist mm-hmm. and pretty, like, non-inclusive. So I kind of used Antigone to be like, a contrast to my personal definition of what feminism means because mm-hmm. I feel like Antigone really doesn't, like, have, like, equality for all because it really relies heavily on gendered stereotypes. Absolutely. And not on, like, just, I guess, equality in general. Absolutely. Like... Antigone is very much putting people into boxes based on gender, which, when we talk about feminism and gender equality, um, the end goal is not to make men and women equal. Um, And I'm, I think this is, I'm paraphrasing from a quote by um, Alok, uh, yes, oh, I love who Alok is Ramon. a wonderful um, gender non-conforming uh, person of color, activist, lovely human being. Um, but the goal of feminism is not to make men and women equal. It is to erase the separating of people by genitalia. And of putting people into these boxes that inherently separates and segregates people on the basis of sex and the idea that we're all human and physical features do not define that and do not separate that. And that's not to say, I want to make it clear that like, Gender is a social construct, but obviously, like, gender identity and how that affects you, everyone everyone knows how gender affects them personally better than anyone else can explain it to them, mm-hmm. and so everyone's experience with gender is very valid, um, and you should be able to identify however you want to identify. My hot, hot take. Spicy take on Antigone and gender. Yes. Noted. Writer, poet, feminist, Audre Lorde said it best in her book, Age, Race, Class, and Sex, Women Redefining Difference. As a 49-year-old black lesbian, feminist socialist mother of two, including one boy, and a member of an interracial couple, I usually find myself a part of some group defined as other, deviant, inferior, or just plain wrong. Traditionally, in American society, 
It is the members of oppressed, objectified groups who are expected to stretch out and bridge the gap between the actualities of our lives and the consciousness of our oppressor. Audre Lorde's quote right there. In fact, this entire piece that she writes. It truly emphasizes my definition of feminism. Because I define feminism as equality for all. I define myself as an intersectional or an inclusive feminist. And... It's very clear that because feminism, it's still growing now and it's still evolving, but in the past, feminism was very exclusive, it was very restrictive, and women and other minority groups were unable to have the title of feminist because they do not fit into any of these these boxes, these characteristics that are required, such as white, middle class, heterosexual, etc. And this should not be something that is accepted there there should not be this many sectors of division of feminism in my personal belief because while i do believe in equality and in free will i believe wholeheartedly in unification and i believe that In Audre Lorde's piece, in this quote that I read out loud, she's truly divided because she belongs to so different niche groups. And she was not overall accepted by the traditional group of feminists because she was black, She was a mother, she was a lesbian, she's a socialist. And that really breaks my heart. I think this exclusivity or this restriction almost that people have had to face because they were not the typical white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, socioeconomic status women uh, deeply and negatively affected the feminist movement and how people perceive feminism today. Um, I think people such as Lord and you know thousands of other women who I can't even begin to name right now because there's just too many up on my head, really 
had a hard time developing that that name of being able to call themselves a feminist. And that, unfortunately, as I talked about before, or as you heard before through the Jezebel narrator, is very, very common today still. And that puts a lot of people off from calling themselves feminists. I know personally, I have a friend who does not consider herself a feminist. She's a queer identifying woman. She's white, able-bodied, cisgender. Um, but she just feels that the term feminist is too it's too strong. It's too it's too violent almost. Meanwhile, I have tons of friends, uh, people who are genderqueer, people who are disabled, people who are from all different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, religious orientations, socioeconomic statuses, who do identify as feminists. But if you look at a few years back, they would not be able to to call themselves that just because of how exclusive and how how tight the whole category of feminism is. Gender is something that I've either expressly talked about in this podcast with how feminism is a movement that was started by white women. Uh, well, no, it was a movement that was started by women and for women to have rights, but it ended up being an exclusive club almost to white women and how it has affected other women of color. Uh, and then I've progressed to talking about how gender has affected how feminism has now been perceived. So in third wave feminism, how genderqueer people, people who don't follow, who don't fall into the status of only being this category of white, privileged, cisgender, heterosexual, etc. Now, one event that has recently occurred that I think uh, further discusses gender and my definition of feminism is that New Jersey has recently created the Transgender Equality Task Force. Now, uh, it has been well known in America that transgender women, especially women of color, uh, face violence at a greater risk than almost any other group. Uh, this comes because transgender women, especially women of color, they tend to be either low income, they tend to be in sex work, uh, and they tend to not physically, perhaps, appear to fit into the category of male or female. Uh, and that sometimes develops into a fear and uncomfort, and it has developed into uh, this technique called the panic defense, where essentially uh, an officer or someone who is armed uh, may encounter a transgender woman of color on the streets, just out in public, 
in their car, even in their home sometimes, and panics because they are startled by a transgender person and they hurt them and that ends most likely in death or they're just treated improperly and that leads to death. Now, New Jersey has recently negated the panic defense with this task force, uh, essentially because uh, this isn't an acceptable way to treat transgender women of color or any person at all. Uh, And this task force is working to resolve the issue of shoot first, uh, ask questions later. It's instead resolving to treat transgender people, transgender women of color, uh, respectfully with using the correct pronouns, using the correct gender preferred, uh, talking to them, uh, being able to really not have to use lethal force as the only way to communicate. I think that this is an incredible thing that New Jersey has done, especially because of all the deaths that have occurred of transgender women of color by police and by other people. And I think it really, it, it actually includes an issue that we really have negated or chosen not to talk about for a long time. And it tries to find a solution for something that needs to be talked about.